Every so often on the morning show, I talk about a book that I feel is exceptionally important, a book we need to talk about and that people need to read because uh, it is one of those books that helps us confront something that is central and fundamental to who we are as Americans and yet a matter that can be uh, so badly, even tragically, misunderstood. We're going to be talking today about the whole notion of religious liberty and the importance of religious liberty being extended to all Americans of all faiths. And we will particularly look at the way in which this issue, this concern, has intersected with the Islamic community. Uh, The book at hand is called When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. The author of the book, uh, Usma Yudin, uh, is actually a an attorney, a religious liberty lawyer, who has worked on a plethora of uh, important cases that are around this very, very crucial issue. And uh, her book not only addresses many of these important issues on kind of this wider canvas, but at certain points her book is also intensely personal uh, as she speaks uh, as a Muslim who has had to grapple with many of the uh, most painful and kind of uncomfortable aspects of this on a very personal level. She herself and her children, uh, her own father, uh, and this is uh, an aspect of the book that enriches it greatly. And we come away from this book uh, with a profoundly enriched idea of, of what it means to be religious and how important it is for uh, religious belief, uh, or, or more maybe specifically for religious believers to be safeguarded within our system and in a way in which all of us feel safe to uh, believe what we believe. Uh, the book again is When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom, published by Pegasus Books. And uh, Usma Yudin, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I would like to talk, first of all, about the the mix of perspectives that is part of this book. Maybe that's not the best way to put it, but I was talking about how much of this book is, in a sense, a very objectively written book about uh, kind of the central issues that we're talking about here on kind of a national and even international canvas. And yet there are moments in, in which the book becomes intensely personal, where you talk about things that you and or your children uh, have experienced as Muslims in America. Mm-hmm. Um, as you began working on this book, was that always your intention to, in a sense, mix those two templates? And I wonder if uh, if it was difficult to decide how best to combine those elements into this uh, mm-hmm. fascinating book. Well, I mean, I think it depends where we start the sort of thought process or journey towards this book. I think in the very, very beginning... I set out, um, you know, as, as a religious liberty lawyer who's very much immersed in the law and philosophy of human rights, I 
consistently see all this discourse in the public square that's just you know, it's talking about human rights, more specifically religious freedom, but it tends to be really confused about what that means um, and what are the fundamental principles driving it. Um, and so initially when I set out to write the book, I was like, I need to explain this to people. I need to give them the tools with which they can uh, talk about these things and think about these things in a clearer way. Um, and so, but the personal element of it really just, so it was, it was, it came later and it came with a realization that so much of the problems with the way that religious freedom is talked about is that we kind of think about it just in terms of what the opposition group is doing, right? So it's like conservatives are upset about progressives and and vice versa, or we're opposed to a particular religious group and what we think they might do um, if they have religious liberty. And so much of it sort of stays in that space of politics that we forget that human rights are fundamentally about the human behind the human rights, right? We we just think that this may be just some sort of concept that we can negotiate and we can and, uh, sort of limit or expand without actually thinking about what are the implications for the humans who have these rights and, and how this impacts their everyday lives. Just uh, the very simple act of just being able to act to, to be able to practice what you deeply believe. And so in order to center that focus a bit more on the human, I had to bring myself in. I was like, this is a human. I'm not going to just tell you about the philosophy. I'm going to tell you about one particular human among others. I mean, there are a number of stories about other people in the book, but the connecting thread, of course, had to be me, as that was the, the thread that I that I know the most. And, um, and so that really is the driver there to sort of bring this discourse down from all the heated rhetoric, all the heated politics, and bring it down to the human. That reminds me of one of my favorite lines, which actually comes very late in the book, when you write, it is not our beliefs that religious liberty protects. It protects us, the humans who hold those beliefs. Put another way, religious liberty protects believers, not beliefs. That is a fascinating concept and in many ways is central to the, the, the overall message of this book. Help us understand why that distinction is so important because i think when people think of religious freedom right they think first and foremost of religion of course and religious beliefs and often the beliefs that are thought of in that context are very traditional conservative beliefs or beliefs that one may think are maybe kind of backward they don't go with the the modern sort of uh, ideas of progressive values. I mean, this is this is not just with respect to, to Muslims. I think there's definitely a conversation going on with conservative believers of other faiths, uh, specifically conservative Christians in this country. Um, there's a lot of the, the conflicts around this issue. And internationally, honestly, the conversation goes against Muslims. If you go to a lot of international fora, where I also speak, a number of representatives from even countries, um, authoritarian countries often, are trying to justify their restrictions on religious liberty by focusing on XYZ beliefs that they don't agree with or they think is problematic or they think it's backward in some way. And so the focus is so much on that belief and not on, again, the person who has, who needs the freedom to be able to live out their beliefs. Of course, one of the fundamental points that I make right from the outset in the book is that religious freedom for all is not the same as having free for all, right? So it doesn't mean that in every case you get to do what you want, uh, but there needs to be pretty wide latitude. And in order to understand why there needs to be wide latitude, we have to think about a world in which, which unfortunately does exist in other parts of, of, of the 
uh, this world. There are other countries where that right is very restricted. So if you want to imagine it, you can imagine it in those terms. Um, what would it be like to live in a society where people have they can't even just live out their, their most deeply held beliefs? Like this is this is about like you know your place in the world, what you think is right. Um, you know what the fundamental rights of goodness and your meaning of uh, what everything we're doing. It sort of goes to the very core of who we are. And we have these beliefs, but we can't even live, live them out. Uh, think about what that world might look like. And here in the U.S., of course, we have very wide protections. And this book is really about advocating that we maintain those wide protections. Right. Uh, from the same chapter that I just quoted, you write these, these really important words, I think. One of the hallmarks of religious liberty is that it protects people of all faiths, even if their beliefs seem unfounded, flawed, implausible, or downright silly. It's not that religious liberty requires relativism or indifference to truth. Instead, it's based mm-hmm. on an understanding of the religious quest, humans searching for answers to their ultimate questions and living in accordance with their authentic beliefs. That journey mm-hmm. is different for everyone, both among religious communities and among members of the same community. We may think that another's belief is wrong, but the premise behind religious freedom is that people have the right to be wrong. This principle of the right to be wrong is the foundation mm-hmm. of all my religious liberty work. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Usmati Yudin, and we're talking about her book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. And we will dig into many specifics uh, of 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 that uh, of those words that I just just read, uh, I think before we go any further, it is important for us to get from you uh, a better understanding of the complexity of the Islamic world, because mm-hmm. one of the I think most important points that you make is that it is incredibly dangerous and short-sighted and simplistic maybe even offensive, to uh, paint with too broad a brush when we talk about Muslims. And particularly, of course, when we live in a world when, when a small number of Muslims are doing terrible things, uh, even in, in, uh, in, in the name of, of, of their religion as they understand it, uh, it is a dangerous thing for us to be speaking too simplistically about the Islamic world. Uh, explain to our listeners just how complicated, how varied a world we are talking about. Well, you're talking about 1.8 billion people across the globe, and they encompass a wide array of races and ethnicities and nationalities and approaches to religion. I mean, to get a snapshot even just of some of the Pew research about Muslims even in this country, that Muslims are one of, or if not the most diverse religious groups right here in the United States, coming from dozens of different countries and holding over just a wide array of beliefs in, in relation to their religion, from the nominal to the very devout, just as in every other religion. And also just having and having the same levels as the number of Christians in this country who think that their religion is open to diverse interpretations. And so imagine that sort of snapshot of what the rest of the world looks like with just vastly array um, sort of cultures and uh, also types of governments, right? So there's a, uh, there's a study that was put out recently that looked at 
um, simply the state of religious freedom in across Muslim-majority states and found there was incredible diversity. There was a, a number of them that were uh, completely what we what were classified as religiously free, right? So there was this total freedom to be able to engage in your religious freedom, much much like here. Um, there was, and then among the rest of them, there was about 40% of those were uh, secularists, so they followed the model of France, and they took that approach to religion, where they essentially thought that um, religion has to be kind of forcefully removed from the public square. And then the other half had this idea of, well, Islam needs to be sort of um, the, a source of at least some of the laws uh, governing the country. And so just in that, even just in that sort of tripartite like breakdown, you see this very different approach to religion um, and Islam specifically, which really raises the question of like, well, it's, it can't be that Islam itself is a source of these problems because there's so it's such a diverse array of approaches to that and the ways that's implemented. Uh, so that's just that's just one idea of of the tremendous diversity. Right. And you write, despite this and so much more internal diversity than I could discuss here, in post-9-11 politics, all Muslims are the same and all arouse suspicions in those inclined or incited to distrust them. It does not matter to opponents whether a particular Muslim espouses the types of beliefs that opponents consider dangerous because each Muslim has the possibility of doing so. It also does not matter what Muslims say publicly, as they are always suspected of harboring secret, more sinister plans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to uh, imagine what it's like to live uh, under the veil of, of that kind of pervasive distrust, at least from a large segment of, of the American public. It brings to mind, too, something that you talk about more than once, that that often in your life, even in those situations where you're not, not doing your work as a uh, rig- religious liberty lawyer, that you often feel like you are thrust into the uh, unwanted responsibility of being some sort of ambassador for 1.8 billion Muslims around the world, especially uh, if you would walk in some place dressed in more traditional uh, Muslim fashion. Uh, Can you just say a word about what that burden has been like for you in, in, in maybe more of your personal life? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of being an ambassador for, for my community, you know, obviously having written this book, um, I do feel comfortable talking about the community and, and being out there um, in this way. I'm being on this radio show right now with you, Greg. But I think my, my experience, and so you're referring to the part of the book where I talk about my experience wearing uh, the Muslim headscarf, uh, which I wore uh, throughout college and law school and for a bit afterwards. And so I was fairly young. And of course, those are, those are the times of your life when you're really dealing with um, a lot of just sort of questions about the world and, and where you're in your place in it. And in that precise moment when I was going through all of that, not, not just a 9-11 happened, um, but then, of course, immediately thereafter, just by the very simple act of stepping out in public wearing a headscarf, it became that I had to be an ambassador for 1.8 billion very, very diverse people across the world. Um, that even if I happened to share a faith with them in some sort of very loose way, of course, because it's interpreted in such diverse ways, that I somehow had to, had to defend their actions or, or explain them or stand up for them. And as you can imagine, that's quite the overwhelming uh, task. 
And so it's really just about having the ability to, to determine when to be an ambassador and when I can just be able to live my life as um, just as a regular American. Um, and unfortunately, many women who do wear the headscarf or if anyone else has some sort of other identifiable way of being um, you know, seen as a Muslim, they have to carry that burden. And it is something that is not a neutral burden. There are, of course, assumptions and stereotypes that come with it. Um, and that's sort of and sometimes very negative um, perceptions, which we see now is having uh, there's studies that, not, that are now emerging about the significant impact that's hap- having on both the psychology and physical sort of wellness of the people who do this. And of course, as you can imagine, as my own story uh, has led a number of women to stop wearing the headscarf in public. Before we delve into some of the, the deeper issues of your book, I wonder if we could take a moment to have you talk about your own father and some of the really uh, important work that he did. Uh, I think this is something of, of, of uh, tremendous uh, importance. It helps us understand you, and it helps us understand why this work is so important to you. Uh, please tell our listeners a little bit about your father and some of the very uh, good things that, that he did that you share with us in the book. Yeah, I mean, I found it pertinent. You know, when I was thinking about who is the perfect representation of so many of the different intersecting themes that I explore in this book, I, I couldn't think of anyone better than my father. And of course, knowing him intimately allowed me to write uh, in more detail about him um, than I might have been able to do about other people. And so there's two different themes of, of this book, right? Like, um, or there, or there, there are a number, but the sort of core ideas are one, sort of a, an, an allegiance to America and our founding principles and our understanding that what we have here in the U.S. is unique and it's absolutely unlike anything else in the world. Uh, in terms of the broad freedoms that we have and in terms of the diverse range of people that we get to interact with and that we get to learn from. Yeah, I said earlier that the Muslim community is, in America is a microcosm of the global uh, Muslim community, and I would say the same thing about a number of other range of groups here that were really sort of it's sort of like a microcosm of the rest of the world, and we get a chance to interact with each other with, un, within the framework of broad freedoms, right? Like what better combination is there? So there's this idea of of America, and then there's an idea of of religion and the way that religion inspires us to do incredible things and you know, things that are almost in some cases just um, you know we wouldn't really think that we're capable as humans who are selfish and um, you know and, and limited by our, our concerns and worries. It helps us transcend all those limitations, and that's why it's so important to protect religious freedom because without that freedom. People can't be in that space where religion inspires uh, tremendous good. And so here's this man uh, who he passed away 13 years ago after a short bout with um, terminal liver cancer. He was never uh, never sick a day in his life. And then one day in April 2000, and uh, it was six, 2006, he was uh, on my brother's birthday, actually. My, my younger brother had just turned 17. Um, he, my father was told that he has terminal liver cancer, and then four months later, um, he passed away. And that just the way that he dealt with his illness was a complete just peace and sort of understanding that this is what God had wanted for him. Of course, we did go through the, the requisite medical treatment. 
Um, but concurring to that, he had just sort of said, you know, I'm hoping for the best, but what, what God wants for me is what will happen. And that was incredible just to see that type of resolve, because it was the type of resolve that I had seen throughout his life. But that was a true testament to how sincere that was. And he was somebody who devoted so much to America. Right? He came here as this, this young immigrant, um, and he was a civil engineering um, student, grad student at Carnegie Mellon. And at the time, when deciding where he was going to settle in the U.S., he saw that Miami and South Florida generally was very undeveloped back then in the 60s and early 70s. And so he decided that he was going to go down south um, and help construct this part of the United States. And in fact, he did. His, his imprint is all over Miami. It's in various parts of the uh, Miami International Airport. It's on the seaport, which is where the cruise ships dock. It's on uh, affordable um affordable housing neighborhoods, it's on public schools. Um, and he was somebody who just took so much pride in developing and literally constructing these fundamental aspects of infrastructure of Miami, Florida. But in the context of that, of course, he also wanted to add to its religious diversity. He wanted to add, he wanted to, to construct mosques as well. He wanted, and, and the dedication, that sort of shows perfectly how it's, it's, he's dedicated to America, but he also sees that what, so much of what's motivating him to be dedicated to America is that freedom to be himself, including to be immersed in his religion and to create a space for that religion in that same community that he's so devoted to. And so he went on to, um, to both design and uh, fund in large part a number of mosques, one of them being the Islamic Society of Miami, which I talk about in the book. Hmm. And, of course, one of the things you do in your book is that you remind us that uh, for for longer than most of us would would, would ever imagine, uh, Muslims have been welcomed in America, at least by and large. I mean, dating all the way back to our founding fathers uh, at a time when there were not many Muslims here, but uh, someone like Thomas Jefferson very specifically uh, referred to them and 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 called for them to be welcome here and uh and of course there've probably been exceptions to that but but by and large uh it was a, a largely positive setting until the aftermath of 9/11 i mean and then we see the situation uh turn and uh this growing sense from at least a portion of the american public that muslims are to be distrusted and feared. Um, I think as you talk about this feeling in general, you make a very striking distinction that I think is worth exploring for just a, a couple minutes. And that is this. Uh, Islam is their context, not their cause. You are writing here about organizations like ISIS, and the terrible things that they have done. But basically you're saying a group like ISIS uh, would exist even if there wasn't this religion called Islam. Uh, that the cause of what they are doing and the source of their anger and hatred does not spring from the Islamic faith at all, but springs from something else. Explain that distinction about Islam being the context rather than the cause of what mm -hmm. a group like ISIS does. 
Yeah, I mean, I think when people see all these different, both ISIS and other um, violent actors use, to engage in violence and then use the language of Islam to justify or to cloak their their intentions, it, you have to understand almost as if it's some sort of international gang, right, that wants to justify um, its own depravity in in terms that might uh, appeal to others or might, might might tie it into something that might seem like, like it's a greater good or a bigger cause. And that's really what I'm contesting here. It's like what ultimately you're going to have violence. You're going to have um, the type of conflict that arises in sort of these vacuums that are created by incredible um, geopolitical conflicts. Um, and so, for instance, in the book, what I talk about, and I quote an, an expert in this area, where she says it's really to you have the key is to reverse the era of cause and effect, right? And you have, and just look at just look at what happens anytime the same geopolitical conditions exist, right? So if you take those same uh, types of conflicts and vacuums and you just put them in different parts of the world, it's going to depend on whatever the local social currency is. And that's what these pe- people engaging in violence are going to use to try to justify their actions. And so in contexts such as Syria, um, that that's, of course, the local social currency over there is going to be Islam. But in other contexts, in other times, it's different. It's a different um, local currency that they use. So whether it be the language of secularism, the language of Christianity, or the language of anything else, it's really just about what gets them buy-in in that particular context that they're going to use. And that specifically is what's happening with, with ISIS as well. In that particular context, it gets buy-in in order to cloak it in the terms of Islam. And if you really and and if you really look at what's happening everywhere else in the world where you don't have those conditions of conflict, what you see is a unanimous sort of consensus among the the scholars of Islam and the clergy of Islam to say that they reject that interpretation of of of, of their religion, right? And so it's really just about let's look outside this place of conflict and let's look within it and let's just see exactly what's going on here in terms of the dynamics um, and the extent to which it is actually authentically rooted in religion. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, Asmati Yudin, author of When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. And uh, she talks in this book about uh, what Muslims in America now face and uh, the importance that Muslims, like all of us, uh, be accorded uh, religious freedom, uh, religious freedom promised to all of us. Uh, One of the things I really appreciate about your book is that when you recount for us all kinds of disturbing stories about various acts of intimidation and or hatred uh, towards Muslims, that you do so in a way that really makes us feel. Uh, I mean, it is not just kind of a long laundry list, but uh, in many cases, you, you, you tell us names and give us context and share these stories in a way that, that, uh, that impact us on a very emotional level. And I really appreciate that. I also appreciate the fact that you remind us that America's history is laced with similar stories that wouldn't necessarily involve Muslims, but involved other religious groups earlier in our history. Can you just say a word about how applicable those stories are to this one now about uh, 
American Muslims in, in, in the 21st century. Are we talking about, in a sense, the very same kind of discrimination, maybe just playing out in different ways, or are there, or are there aspects of the Muslim experience that, that would be different than some of these other uh, past discriminations in our history? Well, there's definitely a lot in common. Um, then, of course, there's unique aspects as, as well. In terms of what's in common, it's quite surprisingly just the same type of argument coming up over and over again. Um, this idea of delegitimizing the religion as an actual religion. This is something we've seen in relation to anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, and anti-Mormon um, discrimination and hostilities um, in the course of our history. Um, in the 19th century, the Catholics were the main bogeyman, right? It was this idea that um, there was a fear that there was some, there was an allegiance to a foreign power, in that case, uh, the Pope, and that this allegiance was going to uh, drive these people, uh, Catholics specifically, to um, to take over the United States and impose on, on the United States its own image and its own ideals and values. And of course, that is a very similar uh, concept that we're hearing now in terms of Muslims, this idea that there's somehow an allegiance to something uh, either to Muslim-majority states abroad or to some, or to some different um, idea of the common good, that, and that is what uh, Muslims are going to impose on the United States if we give them freedom, right? And so in, before, this, these fears are what led to a number of different legal measures uh, limiting um, Catholic participation in public life and, and Catholic religious liberty, uh, and not just religious freedom, but of course also um, was very much manifested in, in violence in terms of riots and ransackings of uh, Catholic homes and churches. Um, and similarly with uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church, um, this idea that there was an allegiance to the president of their church, um, because it is believed that the president receives uh, something equivalent to revelation, um, and that there and that and that therefore Mormons are going to put this those beliefs above um, above their um, above the U.S. Constitution. And so we saw that with, uh, for instance, the senator Reed Smoot's uh, hearing through the Mormon senator, and for. A long time, even after being elected, he was unseated because there was ongoing prolonged hearing basically about, you know, proof to us that you're actually going to follow the U.S. Constitution. And so there's been various episodes like this. Um, and, and it's not surprising then to see some of the same arguments pop up with regard to Islam. Of course, there's always going to be unique elements of each because of the, the unique parts of the theology that are being uh, you know, taken out of context and manipulated uh, there is, unfortunately, a very well-paid, um, what the Center for American Progress calls fear industry, they call it fear inc. These are professional propagandists who are, spend their full-time job is uh, to perpetuate fear uh, about Muslims and Islam. And so there's going to be all kinds of clever arguments that they're going to come up with in terms of one of the ones that you yourself, Greg, mentioned very early in this conversation. You mentioned the idea of deception, right, this, this term, takiyo, and they have just taken it out of the context of the historical sort of situation in which it was actually an intra-Muslim issue um, in terms of Shia Muslims being able to to sort of um, publicly denounce their, their religion as a way of, of um, preventing persecution by Sunnis in certain particular contexts. And they've taken that idea 
and they've basically mapped it on to all of Muslim action. You cannot do anything good because every act of goodwill is basically presented as, well, that person's just acting good because they're trying to deceive you. They're trying to trick you. And so you can't trust even the ones who are good, even if they're good all the time, um, because all those actions amount to, to, to deception. Your book is essentially split down the middle in terms of two ways in which uh, the religious liberty of Muslims is attacked and or undermined. And the first way is the the whole notion touched on in, uh, in the title of your book that Islam, in fact, itself should not be regarded as a religion at all. And, and because of that, it obviously then is not subject uh, to the protection of religious liberty. If Islam is something else, if it's in fact a political system of belief rather than uh, a, a religion. Uh, and, and you spell out the way in which this argument has been crafted over the years. One of the central stories in how this has played out was uh, in a relatively small community in Tennessee. Is it Murfreesboro? Is that how we pronounce that? Yes. Uh, and the construction of an Islamic center there that underwent uh, a terrible siege of attacks of one kind or another. As you tell us the story of this small town, one of the most intriguing things about the story, and it plays out this way over and over again in, in other places as well, is how it is a story that begins so positively and then deteriorates into uh, another kind of situation uh, that is that is so frightening. Uh, explain what played out in this community in Tennessee. Yeah, as you mentioned, it was a community that was uh, by and large one of interfaith harmony and neighborliness. Um, even in the aftermath of the media aftermath of 9-11, there was assurances um, to the Muslim community there by their Christian neighbors that they were safe there um, and that they understood that there was a distinction between the people who had perpetrated the horrific acts of that day and the people who were living among the, among the Murfreesboro community. Um, but unfortunately, uh, so the, the context, the larger context here is that Murfreesboro, the, the conflict that broke out of Murfreesboro happened in the immediate aftermath of the, the so-called Ground Zero Mosque fiasco that was taking place in New York City in 2009 and parts of, and parts of 2010, uh, which, as your listeners may be uh, familiar with, that it was a community center that was spearheaded by a Muslim group of peacemakers and uh, later came to be known as Part 51. Um, and it was something that was going to be open to people of every religious uh, persuasion and, and no religion as well. Um, and it was going to have like a pool. It's basically going to be like a YMCA with basketball courts and a communal meeting space and a totally ecumenical prayer area uh, with no external signs of Islam or it being a mosque. Um, but of course, it was dubbed by, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of sphere industry experts here. One of them, um, Pamela Geller, she's quite busy working on these issues, um, dubbed it the Ground Zero Mosque because it, it was located uh, near, of course, nor, nor on Ground Zero, but near um, Ground Zero, and basically just called it a monstrosity and said that this was going to be uh, 
sort of the symbol of the Muslim takeover of the United States and sort of glorification of 9-11. I mean, completely absurd, crazy claims that unfortunately caught on. Um, and many in the media started repeating these claims, and it was a larger sort of national um, controversy that broke out. And as that controversy started to leave the bounds of New York City, the first community to be affected was the Murfreesboro, Tennessee community. If you just look at time-wise, you'll see that's the first one. And it was the same type of arguments that were being played out there, where there was after the county approved the, the construction plans for the community to go ahead and build this mosque, um, some in the uh, among it, the community, uh, just a local, a small group, um, but very strong opposition, brought a lawsuit to challenge that approval, basically saying that the Religious Land Use Act under which this approval was granted does not apply in this case because. Greg, as you mentioned, it, Islam is not a religion, right? There, that was the idea. It's not a religion, therefore you don't get religious liberty, you don't get the protections of this particular religious land use act. Um, and instead, the county should have just, you know, really advertised this much more than it would have if it was approving a church or a synagogue, because the argument went, uh, this poses dangers, it's a physical, um, it, creates, it creates physical insecurity for us, Mosques are simply, quote-unquote, Trojan horses under which extremists come and plant themselves in American suburbs from which to attack and then take over the United States. And therefore, um, this group of people cannot have the protections uh, that every other religious believer gets. Hmm. One of the really uh, interesting things about understanding what played out there and what has happened in other places is that... (laughs) Certain fears seem to be especially triggered when we are talking about a building, a f- a physical structure that is being that is being constructed that, in a sense, rises uh, in a, in a given uh, community. And you're quite right in in reminding us about the situation uh, with Park Fifty One, the proposed mosque that would have been constructed near Ground Zero. And uh, the, 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 the enormous backlash that emerged uh, out of that, which ultimately dashed those plans. But, but part of what we are talking about is when we have a religion in which meeting together is important and that those meetings need to happen in public places for that purpose, then, it, well, I, I use the word trigger, and that's probably a pretty good word to describe the way in which... Uh, fears and concerns and suspicions for certain people really get ratcheted up by that. Right. I mean, there's definitely uh, a fear. If you have a fear of the of a particular religious individual, it definitely becomes ratcheted up when you have a group of the same people getting together, um, especially in this conception of something being not a religion, but a dangerous political movement um, that's inherently rooted in this idea that people are getting together to sort of instigate this movement. Right. You also spend quite a lot of time talking about another way in which the religious freedom of Muslims is attacked, and that is not going quite so far as to say Islam is not a religion, but to make what amounts to kind of a a ridiculous distinction between Good, mas- good Muslims and bad Muslims, or certain good aspects of the Islamic faith versus bad aspects of the Islamic faith, which might mm-hmm. seem like a more nuanced, sophisticated approach to this. Uh, but in some ways, 
it's perhaps even more dangerous because of the fact right. that it is, in a sense, a more subtle attack. How have we seen this play out most often? Yeah, so when I turn to that part, um, that particular type of distinction in the latter half of my book, and I think it's a, you know, in some ways a surprise twist uh, for the readers, um, because we go from this very explicit attack on Islam, and, and, and it's something that you could write, just keep going on and on about, but it's like, well, let's look at some, other, some of the other ways that Islam is being turned into something not a religion, or conceived as something, or, cha- or even championed as something as not a religion, right? So in very sort of last parts of the book, I, I look at both the good aspects of the way that Islam is being celebrated by various um, powerful actors in media and entertainment, but also the specific way that it's being celebrated uh, essentially secularizes um, the religion and champions specifically it as, as some sort of political or ethnic identity as opposed to a religious identity. But before I get to that, I talk about how much of our national security policy creates this distinction as well between the good and acceptable parts of Islam and the bad parts. Unfortunately, the way that that national security policy plays out is that what it defines as good versus bad um, are the religious acts themselves, right? So if you're in, if you're engaging in regular worship, you know, devout Muslims are uh, they pray they pray, they pray five times a day. Uh, they fast 30 days of Ramadan. Many of them wear traditional religious garb, or at minimum a headscarf, or men will grow beards. Um, these acts, these sort of basic acts of just religious worship and ritual, according to certain theories that have been implemented into our national security, po- national security policy, um, these very acts of religious observance have been deemed signs of um, extremism or radicalization. Um, and that, of course, causes a lot of concern for me because what it's essentially saying is that in order to stay out of um, away from government scrutiny, you essentially have to stop engaging in religious worship. As you discuss this, uh, one of my favorite moments uh, in this portion of the book is when you quote uh, a judge from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Thomas Ambro, uh, who overturned uh, a lower court's ruling. Uh, on a a challenge to the NYPD's program, which went on for years, in which uh, they were uh, doing covert operations, uh, infiltrating various uh, Muslim groups without any any cause to do so in terms of of direct suspicion. But just because they were Muslims, it was enough uh, to engage in this kind of activity. And Judge Ambro... Uh, in his ruling that that was wrong, said uh, Judge Ambrose underscored the importance of courts enforcing the Constitution whenever there is a fear of a few who cannot be sorted out easily from the many. In other words, that's what we're talking about here, that yes, there are a small number of Muslims somewhere that we fear in terms of what they might do, but when we can't easily pull them from the many, we end up focusing our fear on the many, on the all. Right. And then, in your words, uh, we then find find innocence being forced to bear that burden of of of, of guilt. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really what this is all about. Absolutely. And so, in the absence of uh, easy ways of singling out 
the problematic individuals that we're worried about from the many, um, as you notice, we've ended up developing policies that end up punishing the many. And the way, and the more specifically, the way that the many end up being punished is with regard to their, their religious observance. Um, and unfortunately, their very act of engaging in religious worship becomes um, a sign that you know, they're, they're threatening. Um, and, if, and then that is another aspect of this idea of when Islam is not a religion, right? It's no longer a religion. It's suddenly the very act of observing it has become uh, something, it's, it's a political threat. Um, and so you, you can't even, just, just as the way that, Jew, that members of Jewish and Christian and other faiths can engage in their religious worship without having to worry about it. Their very acts being impugned with some other, some other motive. Unfortunately, many Muslims in this country and across the world, honestly, um, don't have that same freedom. Right. And, of course, one of the stickiest matters of all, which we don't really have time to talk about, unfortunately, we can touch on it briefly, is the fact that now many are stepping forward championing the, the concept of religious liberty, of religious freedom, but only in service of their own. I mean, for instance, conservative Christians uh, believing that they need to safeguard their own liberty, uh, even when it's at the expense of another group, for instance, Muslims. And your argument is religious liberty must be extended to all. That is what America is about, not about uh, selecting this religion and giving it a special protection not afforded to others. Not just that, that that's our ideal, but the, that's the only way to protect that ideal of religious liberty for all, and just this robust idea of religious freedom, period, is that you have to extend it to everyone. Because if you start carving out parts of it, what you're essentially doing is that saying, hey, government actors, government officials, you now have the power to decide you know, which parts of a religion you don't like, or the majority gets to decide which, which parts of a religion it doesn't like, which people it doesn't like which religion is going to cover, which one it's not going to cover, and the way it's going to do that is by coming up with what, what these people think is a clever argument by saying it's not a religion, um, but it's not clever at all, because what it's doing is, is just opening up the space to be like, well, here, come, regulate us um, and take away our freedom, without understanding, without having the foresight to realize that if you give the government the power to, to, to do this with respect to one religion, it now permanently has that power to do it with any other religion. Right. It's, it's just like, well, you said we can decide, you know, what is acceptable um, and not acceptable and that we get to re- regulate what the majority thinks is um, is unacceptable or not even just the majority, but even a very vociferous minority um, and that we get to regulate that. And so what really what I'm saying to the readers of this book and uh, many who and specifically the opposition who unfortunately um a number of them are conservative Christian, is that, you know, hold up. Like, in, in the interest of self-interest, this might not be the best argument for you to be making. Exactly. I mean, by, by stepping out on that particular limb, you are, you are, in a sense, undermining the whole notion of religious liberty, and chances are you are endangering your own religious liberty in ways that you might not fully understand. Your book also goes on to talk about the work that you've done on behalf of, for instance, the uh, owners of Hobby Lobby, uh, that uh, that baker in, in Colorado uh, with the same-sex marriage, wedding cake, and, and, and others. You have, you have been a part of this issue and, uh, from many perspectives, not just that of, of, of the, of the uh, Islamic faith. And I appreciate so much at the heart and soul of your book 
these words. Uh, You're quoting a verse from the Quran when you say, uh, this verse teaches me that people will always be different from each other in important ways because that is how God created them. My job and the job of all of us living among other human beings is to appreciate that difference. We don't fight diversity or resent one another because of it. Instead, difference is an inherent and indispensable part of humanity. To reach out across divides and know one another is to fulfill God's plan. That and more in your book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom, published by Pegasus Books. Asmati Yudin, thank you so much for writing this important book and joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Thank you so much, Greg.